Hi, this is Clint Babcock, author of Negotiating from the Inside Out, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Bill Rungle, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Clint Babcock. With over 25 years of sales, leadership, and negotiation experience, Clint Babcock has worked with senior executives at companies in a wide range of industries to help them strategically build their sales forces. He's a Sandler certified trainer who works with businesses of all sizes from the Tampa Bay office. He has a degree in finance from the University of Central Florida and takes pride in keeping himself, his clients, and his students numbers focused. Clint is here to talk about his book, Negotiating from the Inside Out, a playbook for business success. Welcome, Clint. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you inviting me to join you today. It's a real pleasure. And Clint, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Well, I was a, I was a sports guy. So probably just to pick one, my football coach, a gentleman named Chuck Bowman. His just his energy, his upbeatness, he taught and led and coached from a degree of positiveness instead of a, a, of a degree of negative. So I always kind of reflect back on that when I think of who was that coach early on in my career that I look at and go, all right, between the energy, between the positiveness, between the team building activities, he made, he made playing something pretty tough, pretty damn fun. And do you remember one of the first times that you suddenly realized that you had internalized and adopted some of those qualities in your own personality as a result of his influence? Yeah, it was, it was probably when I when I got, you know, my first promotion, you know, when um when you go from a salesperson producer to uh, to a sales manager, I think I might have been overseeing all of two or three people, and and it's that that aspect of really reading and watching how are people reacting and responding, and you know are they down, are they up, where are they, and just keeping an eye out for them emotionally, and are they having fun along the way? So it was it was that kind of that connection around. All right, what what kind of influence do I want to have on these people? And what do I want to do to make sure that they are, they are staying in that positive mindset as much as possible because they have a hard thing to do. And that was at the time, you know, making roughly a hundred dollars, cold calling people and uh, getting a lot of rejection. So, so making sure that they're staying mentally, mentally sound. That's a terrific example because you actually had to notice what their state was in order for them to perform at the level you knew that they could and that the company required. It's, it's really something where you start to become aware of other people and it's really part of the sales and negotiation game. Your career's really been in sales, sales negotiation and negotiation training. What led you to this area of business? How did you find yourself attracted to this area? Well, I, I got really, really fortunate. I worked for a uh, technology company back through the 90s and the owner of that company, it was uh, a gentleman named Tom Wallace, uh, invested in Sandler training. For about a year and a half, we went through weekly training and development, and it just it hit me right at the right time. I was probably 25, 26, got fortunate enough to, to go through this. And I remember sitting in the seat, and I don't know, maybe it was six, seven, eight months into it, 
seeing the guy that was training us and just how how sharp he was, how good he was, and he was an enter trainer. He was an enter trainer. He, he he cracked us up. He was he was phenomenal. And I just remember sitting there going, you know, that would be something I'd like to do someday. You know, I was too wet behind the ears to even think about it at the time. But it was you know between the content, between what I saw him doing, and the impact that he was having on us as individuals and at our company. That was the, the the moment where I looked at and I said, you know, that's something that uh, at some point in time I want to do. You know, Clint, I want to call it out to everyone listening, how we are really showcasing our skills and our talent and representing our companies every interaction. When we are talking with people on the phone or in a Zoom conference or walking into other people's offices, you're noticing, and here's an example of someone who's doing training, who had built a relationship, and you spark some, he sparked something in you. He really inspired you to take a different career path because he showed with enthusiasm and competence what his career was like. Yep, exactly. Negotiations are really important because they occur at almost every stage of running and growing a small business, from interviewing to business development, to customer service, to supply chain management, to simply asking another manager to prioritize or accommodate your needs. You've titled your book, Negotiating from the Inside Out, and tell a story where you learn personally how prevalent it is that we underestimate, underprepare, and therefore underwhelm ourselves before most negotiations even begin. Can you describe that a point and that story where you arrived to straighten out the invoice at a major bank client who was about $100,000 in arrears to your company and what happened? Yeah. So if you put this underneath the heading and we all have them of, oh my gosh, boy, did I learn from failing big time, right? So so here, here is the situation. We had, we had a, a software changeover in our accounting system where we just for a period of probably three to six months, we were just messing up on on invoicing our customers. And we, you know, we were just, it, it was truly our fault. We weren't getting things right. And then we had a very large, uh, large, financial services client that we did a lot of business with. And, and we, it took us a long time to try to sort out exactly where we were and how much they owed us and such. So, so we, we finally got to that point. We were what we thought semi-prepared. And the only thing we were prepared is we had, we had our facts. That was about it. And we'd set up the meeting to go, to go in and sit down and, and work through this. Well, it's at their high rise we're you know who knows let's just call it the 30th floor and we're in this conference room and we're sitting around and a couple of the other people from the uh, bank were were in the meeting and then in walks the senior vp doesn't sit down barely says hello and says hey look you know i gotta tell you i've had more meetings around uh you know our invoicing issues with you guys than than i care to even talk about it's been a total waste of of my time. Here's what we've been able to figure out. We've been able to figure out that we owe you about $70,000. That's it. That's what we're willing to pay you. So if that's acceptable to you, you know, just let these people know and, uh, and we'll be on our way. And, uh, you know, I'm glad we got this taken care of. Paused for a second and I had nothing. I had nothing. He just totally came in and just owned the room. And next thing you know, he said, thanks for, thanks. Appreciate you guys coming in, turned and left. And it was, it was just, 
you know, a, a rookie mistake of not knowing and being prepared to deal with a, a strategic negotiator like him that was using a wonderful gambit, which was, you know, we term it now fate accompli. It's, it's already done. And, uh, you know, and, and I was just kind of left going, all right, wow, what just happened? So, you know, and, and I think, you know, hopefully everybody in the audience can look back and look at a situation where, where, hey, they got, um, they, they got their, they got their stuff handed to them by somebody that was a heck of a lot more prepared than they were. Well, let's go into that a little bit. Yeah. I really enjoy that method in your playbook where you help people identify the characteristics of an amateur negotiator, a tactical negotiator, and a strategic negotiator. What are some of the major identifying traits and how do you use them to help business leaders who come to you for training on how to be a better negotiator? So you mentioned the three, amateur, tactical, and strategic. The first thing that I do when I train organizations and companies on this, I say, look, hey, put yourself on where you think you are. Uh, you know, because, you know, the book, Negotiating from the Inside Out, the first thing that we want everybody to do is look at themselves how do they negotiate? What kind of negotiator are they? How versed are they? How educated? I put it underneath the title of negotiating intelligence. What is your negotiating intelligence? So that's a primer of a question. And then if I'm in front of a room, I'll say, what, what do you know? Tell me, what do you know? What are the, what are the techniques? What are the gambits? What all do you know? And, and this is why this book is so important is because most people don't know a whole lot. If I were to ask them that on sales, I'd get all kinds of stuff. If I were to ask them on operations, I'd get all kinds of stuff. But I think it's one of the few things that's really spent enough time on. So the amateur negotiator, this is the person that, uh, you know, doesn't negotiate a whole lot. They don't have a process. They, they do it from time to time and they, they look at it as more as, as a game. You know, they're going to play other people against each other. They'll, they'll be a little bit coy. And quite frankly, they're probably more so than anything looking for just some free consulting. But And they'll do some things, but they really don't look at it as a core skill set. Now, the tactical negotiator, this is the kind of person that you run into in companies that work in a procurement department, and they they make part of their living off negotiating deals. Sometimes you can identify them if they have CPM, Certified Purchasing Manager, meaning that they went to courses and classes to learn how to negotiate against you. And they, they know some of the tactics and techniques in negotiating with teams. And, and ultimately, their compensation may be based upon how much they negotiate in, in dollars and cents from you. So if they get 10% off their compensation, they may actually even get a piece of that 10% that they, that they got from you. And then you've got the strategic negotiator. This is the person that studied this, that has gone to courses, gone to classes, and they, they use strategy to negotiate. They absolutely will take you through a process. And, and quite frankly, most of the time, their skill sets are stronger than other people's. They're going to keep you off balance a little bit, and they're really going to know how to be patient. They're a patient negotiator to be able to figure out. They already know where they want to end up. They already have an idea of what concessions they believe they're going to get. And if you're not as strong as this person is, they're going to have negotiated a lot of things from you through the process. 
These people start early and negotiate often. It's not all of a sudden that comes down to the end and boom, now they're ready to negotiate. No, they've already nibbled things away from you and they've already been able to really figure you out. They know if you're a sales professional, they know that you've already got this opportunity in your pipeline and they'll try to use certain leverage points in order to find out what is your weak area of negotiating what's most important to you. So the amateur, the tactical, the strategic, making sure you can identify who you're going up against so that when your system kicks in, you've got an idea of how to deal with it. What I love about that description is that it's all skill-based. And like with any skill, this can be learned. It's not a matter of whether someone was born a great negotiator or not. We may be born with certain skills or experiences that allow us to develop those skills. But once you decide this is important, isn't it true that anyone can become a better negotiator? Well, yeah, absolutely. We, we get that, especially around sales. Well, you know, salespeople are born. Some, some are. They, they all come with certain traits and qualities and such. But, but for the most part, good salespeople, they're constantly learning. And same way with negotiations. It's, it's absolutely a skill. It's something they could work on, something they could spend time really trying to have that, we call it cash when we're teaching people, cash, K-A-S-H, knowledge, application, skills, habit. And that's the progression that people have to take. So right now, most people don't have a whole lot of knowledge about negotiations. So part of the what the, the book will help them do is to create a lot of that knowledge. Then they've got to take it and practice it and apply it whether it's uh, internally in, in sales meetings, trying to figure out, all right, hey, if, you know, what's the situation? What's the scenario? How would I apply these techniques? And then you do that enough, it becomes a skill set that you can rely on, consciously think about. And then ultimately, it becomes a habit that you know every single situation you're going into, you know exactly how you're going to be able to handle it. And it's just automatic. Negotiation for people who don't do it often and don't see it as a key part of their jobs, they often feel pressure and they feel stress when they talk about going into negotiation for, again, any aspect of being a small business leader. Maybe you're meeting with a, a client. Maybe you're talking with a supplier about trying to renegotiate terms. And that stress is something that comes up and you give a, a really nice explanation, bring in the drama triangle from transactional analysis. It's an important dynamic to understand in negotiations. Can you explain the dynamic briefly and share an example of how it worked in an actual negotiation? So think about the drama triangle. The best way I can explain it is to this. Uh, Bill, Bill, who is your favorite superhero? Give me, give me the name of your favorite superhero. Superman. Superman, perfect. So in every Superman movie, there's roles, and this is why it's called the drama triangle. You will see this in every superhero action movie. There are three distinct roles. Role number one is the rescuer, which is Superman, right? That's the, the here I am to save the day, right? Then you have the victim, okay? The victim is whatever is looking to get blown up or destroyed or overtaken, and then you have the persecutor, which is the antagonist, of course. This is the person that is persecuting and trying to destroy the world. So in a Superman, what, it would be the Joker and then Gotham City or, or no, that's Batman, uh, Metropolis or the world or what have you, right? So the reason why this is so important to understand is under pressure, 
too many of us jump into the rescue role of the drama triangle and we get our emotions into it. Somebody's asking us for something. They're asking for a better price. They're asking for better terms. And we've got to watch it because the way that people ask us, it could emotionally affect us. And therefore, if we jump into that rescue button, the first thing, a rescue role, the first thing I'm going to want to do, Bill, is make you feel good. You know, I'm going to want to rescue you, right? So that means giving in. That means being able to say, well, hey, you know, I can't do uh, 10% off, but I can do eight. And now I'm immediately conceding something because I want to make you feel better because you've emotionally tapped my rescue button because you jumped into the victim button by telling me you don't have the budget, you don't have the money. I want to, you know, hey, can is there something you can do? Can you sharpen your pencil? So we got to first understand how we react under pressure like that. So here's where I see this happen time and time again when I'm training people. The first thing I'll do is I'll put them into a role play. And one of the role plays might be, hey, the gambit or one of the 12, we call them the the deal makers dozen, the 12 things that your buyers will do. And one of them is, hey, you're going to have to sharpen your pencil or your competition is cheaper. Here's where I see this happen. Here's the greatest example. The next move that the salesperson makes is automatically a concession of some kind. And that could sound like, well, hey, where do I need to be? Boom, you're done. They're getting something, right? It happens. That's the amateur negotiator though, right? Yeah, exactly. Because they they don't know where to go. You said, you know, hey, the competition is cheaper. And immediately, what am I trying to do? I'm fighting my own internal negotiations. The first negotiations ever made is in between your ears, based upon your beliefs, based upon what you've done and your system, right? So so that's where it hits and the rescue button jumps in. And now I say, well, where do I, all right, well, where do I need to be? Hey, well, hey, Bill, if I, if I can, I'm not saying I could, but if I could knock off 7% off of this, would that make me more competitive? They immediately, or worse yet, here's what they do. Oh, well, okay, so you need a better price. Well, well, how about we go back and we look at what we were going to deliver and maybe we could take something off. They try to value engineer the solution instead of realizing this is, this is just a move. There's a difference between somebody's mission and their position. Their mission is to get a problem solved that you're able to solve. Their position is, hmm, if I can get a better price and you can solve it for a better price, then great, I'll ask for it. So that's the prime example that I see time and time again is they immediately, their number one and their first move is concessions instead of having more of a system to it. So that's how an amateur negotiator responds, someone who's untrained. How would a strategic negotiator respond to that same situation where the gambit comes in and somebody says, you know, I wonder if you can sharpen your pencil for me. So you just gave me that. So here's the first step in the system. And this is where you, we've got a three-step playbook that I outlined in the, in the book in order to be able to deal with this. So the first move, the first move is going to be, I call it acknowledge, reassure, and ask. So really, here's in essence what I'm doing in this first move, Bill, is I am giving you absolutely nothing. I'm giving you nothing because I need to create distance between what you're asking for and any kind of concession. 
And in essence, I'm saying, no, I'm not doing anything. I'm not moving off my price, but I got to do it tactically because I can't come back and just say, hey, Bill, thanks for asking. No, I can't do anything. Right. That's too harsh. Right. That, that kind of shuts down the rapport. You want to keep it going and then be in charge of how the, what direction it goes in. Exactly. So here's how this might sound. Hey, Bill, first of all, I, I appreciate you asking and me about being able to you know, kind of sharpen my pencil, come, come off a little bit. Um, but look, I can, I can assure you that when we work through this and you share with me the things that you're trying to resolve and, and the solution that we co-created and put together, I can pretty much tell you that that absolutely is going to nail it. But hey, let me ask you a question: Is is the time frame that you wanted to get this project up and running is that still a valid time frame? So I'm giving you the structure: acknowledge, reassure, and ask a question. And wherever that question is, that's got to lead you someplace, you know, and and back into you know their timing, back into something that's important to them. So. So that's the first part of this. And that alone will handle and take care of a decent amount of your negotiations because they might go, they might shrug their shoulders and just go, you know, if they're an amateur negotiator, they're, they're going to shrug their shoulders and go, well, you know, hey, I just, I just wanted to ask. And, and you just, you know, hey, of course, I, I would too if I were you, Bill. Absolutely. And what it allowed you to do is not jump into their trap. Simply by having the confidence and preparation to not go in and rescue, you've changed the dynamic because you didn't take the bait, you didn't follow them down that path that leads to one and only one conclusion, which would be a concession. You nailed it, which then puts them on the, you know, then it might go away. You might have resolved your negotiator right then, but if they're also a good tactical or strategic negotiator, they're going to come back and they might say something, you know, yeah, but here's the one that we've been hearing lately due to COVID-19 is, is, you know, our, our, our budgets have been, you know, have, have been cut a little bit or our, our, our priorities are shifting or something to that effect. Now we need step number two. Step number two is to struggle and redirect. So what this means is now this is where, where sales is acting, so is negotiating. This is where you got to let them believe that this is impacting you. Uh, you know, so the struggle is a little bit like, oh gosh, Bill, hey, I, I get it. Oh man, you know, I, I can under, I can only imagine what you guys are going through at your company. You know, I'm hearing that a lot. Hey, um, maybe we got to go back and make sure that you're. 100% convicted and you've got the belief that this is going to really solve your problem. So is there something about our solution that makes you think or believe that there's a problem with it? And it's almost a little bit of, we call it strip line, a little bit of moving away from them and, you know, and, and allowing them to come back and tell us, no, what we've, what we're offering is right on. What we have is going to solve the problem because they've got to be convicted of it as well. Because one of my firm beliefs Bill, and, and think about this. Why would you negotiate with me if you truly didn't want me to win your business or get your job, get the business? Absolutely. It would be a, a silly, foolish waste of time. What I acknowledge from what you just described is now you're having them sell you on why your solution is what they want. Right. Instead of me, I see the salesperson trying to come back and go, yeah, but, you know, we put together this and you're going to get this, this and this. And they start dumping on their features and benefits and what they're going to do or and, and such. And no, you got to shift that. You got to get them doing exactly what you said, coming back and, um, you know, and saying, no, this is why I need you. 
which then leads to step three. Step three then is understanding concessions and understanding about, okay, what would be important to Bill in this situation? What can I do to add on to our deal instead of take away? And this means understanding business. This means understanding that sometimes it's easier for me to give you more than to drop my price. You know, and there's a phenomenal exercise I take people through and and it's, it's a great way to think about it. And, and Bill, I'll ask you this, but you don't need to answer me because I'll give you the answer. Would you rather have a 10% increase in your margin, a 10% decrease in your cost of goods sold, or a 10% increase in your price? Here's the answer that I typically get. Everybody goes right to margin. Oh, I'd rather have a 10% increase in my margin. Okay. Well, let's say I was selling you something for a hundred bucks and the margins on it was 50%. So if that's the case, then you got a $50 margin. A 10% increase in your margin is 55, right? Simple. Okay. So you just picked up $5 worth of margin. But if you increased your price by 10%, you went from $100 to $110, you just increased your margin by 10 bucks. You get a 2x increase by increasing your price. And it can actually happen, you know, the other way in some companies where if you decrease or you come off your price by 10%, how fast that erodes your margins. So that's why sometimes it's easier to give, to give something more that has a lower cost of goods sold than it is to come off your first initial number. So strategic negotiators really understand where that, those concessions can be and what's going to be advantageous for the buyer and what's also going to be advantageous for my business. I'm just going to point out that everyone needs to run their numbers on their own products and look at how this impacts it, because it's not always going to be a two-to-one benefit. And by running the numbers and being prepared, you're in the best position possible to understand how to give those concessions in a way that's advantageous. So I got, so let me tell you this quick story. A gentleman that that I work with, his name's Steve. He is the general manager, oversees a company that does uh, garage door repairs of all things, right? And one of the things that we've figured out as we've dove in and have looked at this is that if their technicians, when they get when they get pushed back on price, their technicians can give up to almost two hundred dollars of additional services, and the cost on those two hundred dollars is less than twenty bucks. If they give that as an addition instead of a come off of the price, because most of the time, what do they want to do? They want to come off the price 10, 15, 20%. And we've gotten them to be able to stop doing that and instead add on and give value that really only truly costs them 10 to 20 bucks. But the owners feel, the homeowners feel like they're getting so much more value. And in essence, they truly are because they're getting additional things taken care of that they wouldn't have otherwise have received. So that's why you're right. They need to dive into their business and understand what those concessions can really look like and be advantageous both ways. Now, I know that everyone listening to this is probably both a buyer and a seller in some circumstances. And I think that the approach that you're advocating, Clint, is that being a negotiator isn't about winning all the time because no one with a win-lose mentality or approach succeeds for very long, right? It not it how you perform and follow through with early steps 
the best way to build credibility and trust in your business relationships? How do you see that? Our, our philosophy is good selling leads to little negotiations, but it won't eliminate it. And part of what you still have to do through the negotiation process is take care of that individual, take care of that person. It's technically called there's competitive negotiations and then there's cooperative. Competitive's bill would be if, if I'm selling um, sweaters on the streets of Philadelphia and you walk by, I'm going to be pretty competitive in my negotiations because, Bill, there's probably a pretty dang good, good chance I get one shot at you. And if I can win and you lose, that's okay. I'm, I can live with that. I'll never see you again. Very transactional-based business can be competitive. And there's just there's nothing wrong with that. However, in most of our worlds, we're going to have a relationship after we've decided to do business. So it's a cooperative negotiations where even though I may decide to take a position, I may not move off what you're looking for. I still got to take care of you, Bill. I still got to make sure you're okay with me. And it's the style and the way I go about doing that as you're trying to position well for your organization or company you're going to try to take care of me as well because we're going to truly be partners in this after we consummate a deal. I think that is really well said, Clint. And I'm so glad that you made that point so that people listening understand that it's important to become a better negotiator and it's not to become a transactional negotiator, but to think about the long-term relationships because that's what most of the small business leaders who are tuning in care about, the long-term and the long wins. So in your book, you talk about a couple of ways to think about building trust in a relationship. What else can you add to that specifically so that people could take away a new idea or new perspective about building trust? Trust takes time. So there's two things that we really rely on as, as we start going through that. One is we want people to really map out and read the other person and really spend some time building that relationship, which the core aspect of that is everything from emotional intelligence to also understanding their communication style. We, we really leverage heavily the model of DISC communication styles in order to be able to connect with somebody. And then I also put in there uh, that I got from one of, the, one of the great books that I read called The Trusted Advisor. It's a trust equation, and it just simply is, is credibility times reliability times intimacy. In other words, how credible you are, how reliable you are, and intimacy, meaning how well we know each other over self-orientation. In other words, the lower my self-orientation, where it's not about me, the more it's about you, the more trust will be able to be built. Because if we're both looking after and looking out for each other's well-being through this negotiations, we're going to build trust both ways. And I don't think when you ask people, and I do it a lot in, in certain classes, I'll say, hey, what's your strategy to build trust with another human being? Blank faces is what I see. And that's, that's, that's okay because nobody's ever asked them that question before. Nobody, they never had to think about it. They're, they just do. Well, now when you back up for a second, you go, you know, Bill, I really want to build trust with you. How am I going to go about doing that? What's my strategy? Now you're a little bit more ahead of the game. And at least you know where you're, where you're heading and you have some purposeful techniques and things that you're going to do in order to get there. Well, being asked those tough questions that cause us to pause and say, gosh, I wish I had a really good answer to that <laughs> is one of the reasons that people go to training. 
in order to be challenged, in order to grow, in order to develop new skills. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. And think about when everybody thinks about their industry, and I'm sure listening to this podcast, there's all kinds of different industries and such. Now you got to think, who am I typically building the trust with? What are some of the negotiation gambits that I see the most in their industry? And in the book, we, we, we pull out 12 of them. And when I'm working with a group, I'll say, hey, what are the top three to five you see? You're not going to see them all, but now we then we talk about, all right, let's really nail down these three to five and make sure that we've got our system and our strategy to that in a way that's going to be delivered where we're going to be able to maintain that trust. Clint, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Let's go. What do you got? Earlier, I asked you about a person who influenced or inspired you growing up. Mm -hmm. In your teenage years, what's a song you found inspiring? Let me just go with, uh, with I listened to a lot of Billy Joel. Yep, scenes at an Italian restaurant, Little Red, Little White. I was too young to drink at that time. But anyway, yeah. So anything Billy Joel, that's where I was going. Clint, what would you say is the best $100 or so personal purchase you've made in the last six months? Probably my golf game. I'm really working on my golf game. Bill, I know you don't know this, but I've got twin daughters, 18 years old. Two weeks from Saturday, they head off to uh, to college. And uh, and I'm an empty nester. So so the last uh, couple investments that I've made is uh, is really working towards the working towards the golf game because I, I love the the camaraderie that you have out there with you know, with business associates and, and such. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? In the evenings, I would usually, hey, I'd, I'd be with the family, I'd do what I need to do. And then by nine o'clock, my, my nose is back in the laptop and getting ready for my next day. Because of being at home now, what I'm doing is I'm starting that process earlier so then by sometimes between five and six o'clock, I'm done. And then I can be present with the rest of the family because between commuting to the office, commuting to local clients and such, you know, I have saved an hour and a half a day of commute time and travel time. So I've had to shift that habit of my family and me saying that, oh, it's nine o'clock. Okay. Dad's going to go, going to basically go back to work to get ready and prepare and prep for his, for his next day's sessions. Instead, I've started to be able to shift that to five, six o'clock, get ready. And now I can spend the evenings with my, with my family. So this whole COVID-19, there are so many tough things, but so many great things that have uh, shifted in some of the habits that has been much better for me. Sandler's CEO, Dave Matson wrote the foreword to your book, and he described his moment of truth with a negotiation when he was asked to teach a program on negotiation, and the buyer called at the last minute and tried to negotiate down the price. I don't think this was tongue-in-cheek. I don't think the seller or the buyer realized how ironic it was. Dave managed to resolve the issue in a win-win manner. How important is it for us to realize the need to build skills before we come to our moment of truth. Think about it this way. And, and any anything you've ever gotten good at, you've practiced, you've prepared, you've you've made sure that you were, were ready. And I'll go to the, the sales side. Most people spend a ton of time and they go through sales training and they should. And if they haven't, they've, they've had it somewhere along the way. And that is all practice. So, you know, if you use the sports analogy, how much do they practice before they get into a game? A ton. 
So it is nothing more than, look, you will, if you practice this and you really make it a discipline, you will absolutely be ready when the game happens. Important to make sure that you are prepared, you are ready, you've got your systems and structures. And when the moment happens, boom, it's just a system. And anything that works really, really well within an organization works under a definable system. So the big question I ask as I'm you know, talking to organizations and companies, I'm like, okay, so what's your internal negotiation system? What does that look like? And of course, I know I'm going to get a bunch of, we don't have one. Okay, well, let's talk about that. And how much is that costing you? A great question for a CEO to ask their company and their organization is how much has discounting and our lack of negotiation skills cost our company over the last 12 to 24 months? I think the answer would be very eye-opening, especially given some of the insights that you've shared today on my quest for the best. And Clint, I just want to thank you so much for all that you've shared, talking about Chuck Ballman, your football coach, who instilled a sense of positivity and energy and team building and helped you get your start and become even better at your career and your profession by sharing with you some of those early lessons. You talked about how a, an early Sandler trainer became an entertainer for you and really inspired you to pursue this career track. We talked about the different levels of negotiation and each of us can really quickly self-assess whether we're at an amateur level, a tactical level, or a strategic level, and how much negotiating intelligence does it take to really improve and to build so that we build bigger benefits in for our companies. You explained the drama triangle in how the rescuer, victim, and persecutor all interact under moments of stress, and that there's an emotional pull to rescue or do good. And if you can recognize what's happening, you won't fall prey to some of those gambits that come through. You talked about examples about helping people like the garage door repair company, where if you give them additional services and additional value that costs the company minimal, it really builds the relationship as well as protecting the profit margin of your company. We talked about differences between competitive versus cooperative negotiations and building trust by maximizing the competence, the responsiveness, and the intimacy you have, and keeping the focus of that conversation and the relationship mostly on the other person so it's not all about you. That all builds tremendous trust. And really, to strengthen your organization the most, you shared with us at the very end that it's all about definable systems and recognizing the cost you're paying now by not improving your negotiating skills. For all these reasons and so many more, Clint, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Hey, what a pleasure to be with you, Bill. Say, Clint, before we leave, can you share with us a web address where we can find out more about you and your work? Yeah, it's uh, jmarshall.sandler.com. And I also want to share with people that Clint was generous enough to share copies of his book that will be raffling off during this week of the podcast being released. Check out the show notes where we're not only going to link to Clint's book, Negotiating from the Inside Out, a playbook for business success, but also his website, also his LinkedIn and other social media properties, and also details about how you can simply win at no cost to you. We even pick up the shipping to send you a copy of Negotiating from the Inside Out, a playbook for business success. Clint Babcock, once again, thank you so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. 
Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.